Well, it's good to be back. We, we appreciate your prayers. My family and I appreciate your prayers very much. And special thank you to, to Jim for, um, for filling in. Hope everybody was uh, blessed by uh, Jim's message. We certainly were as we watched uh, live stream. Um, what a blessing. And um, we're here today in a study of the book of John, the gospel of John. John chapter 5, just to refresh your memories where we are in that book. In that chapter, it begins with Jesus performing a miracle, healing a paralytic, a man who has been paralyzed almost 40 years of his life. And so Jesus, because of the power of his word, he speaks it and it happens. He tells the man to get up, pick up your pallet and walk because the word of God is unstoppable. He heals the man and it's on a Sabbath. And so the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, Levi, the Levitical priests, all the different members of the religious leaders, the, the group, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders are very mad, very upset. Because Jesus had the audacity to do it on a Sabbath, and they had created all these rules, 39 rules, 39 interpretations of what it meant to work. And so they had concluded that healing on the Sabbath was verboten. You can't heal on the Sabbath. No, 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 no. They weren't excited that this man had been, who had been dragging himself along, right? I mean, the average Joe doesn't have a, uh, a wheelchair back then. Someone who's handicapped doesn't have a wheelchair. This is a man who would drag himself along, probably. He now walks. No one's excited about that in the, in the group of the, the, the religious leaders. Instead, they're angry at Jesus because he has had the audacity to heal a man on the Sabbath, which was really an offense to them because it meant that Jesus didn't care about their traditions. So Jesus responds to their anger by saying, it was okay for me to heal on the Sabbath because I'm God. He doesn't respond to them saying, your interpretation of the Sabbath is wrong, and that's why it was okay for me to heal on the Sabbath. No, he responds by saying, it's okay for me to heal on the Sabbath, it's okay for me to work on the Sabbath, because God works on the Sabbath. God works all the time. It was not a violation of the law. In fact, it wasn't. But Jesus isn't there in this occasion to teach them how they're wrong in their interpretation of the law. He didn't even talk about their misinterpretation of the law. He's there on this occasion. He has moved these events to set the stage so that he will teach them that he is God in the flesh standing before them. The sovereign God who heals whomever he wants, whenever he wants, on the Sabbath or any other day. And so he has moved these events to tee up the issue before them so that he can teach this crowd that he's God. So first, he offends them by healing on the Sabbath, and then he offends them by proclaiming to be God. Two capital offenses in the Mosaic Law, in their mind, violation of the Sabbath, which he really didn't do, but they perceive it as such, and blasphemy, claiming to be God. They, he didn't commit blasphemy, but they perceive it as blasphemy because they don't believe that he's God. Two capital offenses, both deserving capital punishment. And so this crowd of religious leaders craves to kill him. 
They crave his death. And so what Jesus does is he stands there and gives them this long explanation because he loves them. He loves those who hate him. He loves his enemies. He loves those who long to kill him. He stands there and he gives this long explanation of how he is God. Of how, of how he is equal with the Father. That he has perfect unity with the Father. He explains it repeatedly and unapologetically because this is the core of the Christian message. That God loves you so much that he became a man to make your destiny his destiny and to make his destiny your destiny and to come to pay a debt that he didn't owe but you owed and you couldn't pay. So he doesn't shy away from the message at all. He sets the stage to present it. Let me just refresh your memory on the ten claims to deity that he has made so far in John chapter 5. In verse 19, Jesus equated his actions with the actions of the Father. In other words, total, perfect unity between the Son and the Father. In verse 20, Jesus claimed deity by asserting that the Father loves him as his equal, not the John 3.16 love that we know so well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son so that whosoever believes in him will not perish and have everlasting life. John, 50, John 5.20 is not John 3.16 love. It's a different love altogether. Because John 3.16 love is God loving us despite who we are. That's the amazing wonder of John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Wow! For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Wow! He loves the enemies. He loves the rebels. He loves his, the sinners who were at odds with him. That's the wonder of John 3.16, that he would give his son for the enemies. That's not the love of John 5.20. The love of John 5.20 is not, God, it's not the Father loving, the Jesus, loving Jesus despite who Jesus is, the way the Father loves us in John 3.16. The love in John 5.20 is the Father loving Jesus because of who He is. God. Perfect righteousness. Perfect love. Perfect sovereignty. Perfect omniscience. Omnipotence. Omnipresence. Perfect justice. Jesus is claiming deity in in verse 20 of chapter 5 in the sense that God loves Him because He is equal to God. We also see another claim of deity in verse 20 because Jesus claims that the Father gives him equal disclosure, equal access to everything that is comprised of the Father's plan. To everything that the Father does. Full disclosure from the Father to the Son. In other words, total unity. In verse 21, Jesus claimed deity by saying that he has the same power to give life as does the Father. In verse 22, Jesus claimed deity by asserting that he has authority to judge because the Father has delegated it to Jesus. In verse 23, Jesus claimed deity because he equates his honor with the Father's honor. In verse 24, Jesus claimed deity because he equates belief in his word with belief in the Father's word. In verse 25, Jesus claimed deity because he says that he has the power by his mere word those who believe in His Word, those who hear His voice, He has the power 
to raise them from the dead. I'm not talking about bodies being raised from the dead. I'm talking about someone who is spiritually dead being made spiritually alive. Jesus claims this divine prerogative in verse 15. In verses 26 and 27, Jesus claims deity just by way of refresher this morning. He claims deity because He claims to have the same power over life and death as the Father. And finally, His tenth claim to deity by my count. In verses 28 and 29, Jesus claims that His Word will raise the dead, the bodies of the dead in the end times. Every human being. Believers unto being raised unto eternal joy, eternal celebration, the eternal kingdom of God, unto life. And unbelievers being raised, their bodies being raised unto eternal damnation and forever suffering. Today, Jesus is going to shift. He's made all these claims to deity, ten of them, and now he's going to shift to the evidence, to the testimony that proves, that supports his claim of equality with the Father. The evidence will come in the form of witnesses, and all of the witnesses are supplied by the Father. We'll see two of the witnesses today, and we'll see more of them next time. But before Jesus gets to the witnesses, he makes one more point about judgment. Right? In verse 29, he talked about judgment, raising unbelievers from the dead unto judgment, unto eternal damnation. So before Jesus gets to the evidence, to the witnesses, he makes one more point about judgment, his judgment. And he makes it in verse 30. Look at that. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In verse 19, Jesus said something very similar. In verse 19, he said, everything I do is consistent with the Father's will. Look at verse 19. There he says, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Jesus is saying in verse 30, I already, I already told you in verse 19 that everything that I do is consistent with the Father. My actions are the Father's actions. And the Father's actions are my actions. Jesus isn't saying He is the Father. God is triune. Three separate persons. But they are of such unity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God the Son incarnate. They are of such unity that we say God is one. They don't act independent of one another like Apollo and Zeus and Athena, the gods, the pagan gods of, of the Gentiles and the Romans. No, God is one and yet three persons, triune. And so what we have is this description from Jesus that he's already made, that everything that he does is consistent with the Father. His actions are the Father's actions. And so when we get to verse 30, he says, that includes my judgments. Even my judgments are the Father's judgments. This is important, very important. For Jesus to make a statement that His judgments are just, that His judgments are consistent with the Father's actions, because Jesus is in perfect unity with the Father. 
That means that his judgments, though ruthless as they will be, you heard me, ruthless. Jesus' judgments, as we saw at the 930, will be utterly ruthless. Ruthless means merciless. The judgment of Jesus, the Jesus that we mock, the Jesus that we think is some sort of pusillanimous, weak, milquetoast man, his judgments will be utterly ruthless. The reason I say that is because today he offers his mercy. And he offers it over and over. The world mocks Jesus and he responds with mercy. The world persecutes his people and he responds with mercy. More time. More time. More time to repent. More time to repent. But then a time will come where the era of mercy is over. Remember, Jesus has already said that the Father delegates all judgment to him. The Father will not judge. The Spirit will not judge. It will be Jesus who sits on the throne of judgment. And so Jesus says says here, I just told you in verse 29 that I'm going to raise all unbelievers, many of of, of you, the, the religious crowd, the religious leaders that he's talking to, to he, he knows and they know that they don't believe in him. He's talking to them. I just told you that I'm going to raise you to eternal damnation, eternal punishment, eternal suffering. And now verse 30, I want you to know that that judgment that I'm going to do is just. Why? Because it's consistent with the Father. Everything I do, including my judgments, ruthless as they may be, as they will be, are consistent with the Father. I say that Jesus' judgments will be ruthless because a time will come when he will stop offering mercy, when the era of mercy will be concluded. And I say that they are ruthless because this is the way the Bible describes it. Revelation 20, in the end times, describes the lake of fire, and it says there will be torment there, day and night Forever, Luke 13, Jesus says that the place of judgment for eternity will be the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. This is Jesus speaking. Where he's going to send the unbeliever. Or in Matthew 25, Jesus says that the place of eternal judgment is the place where the devil and his fallen angels will reside forever. I don't want to live there. I don't want to be with the devil and his fallen angels, and neither do you. Because that is the place of suffering. The devil is the author of death and pain and suffering. But Jesus describes the place of the unbeliever, the place of judgment, the place of the person who refuses to accept Christ as the dwelling of the devil and the fallen angels forever as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, as a place of eternal torments, day and night. And Jesus also describes in Matthew 8, this place is the place of outer darkness. How does that work? How is there eternal fire and outer darkness at the same time? I don't know. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Jesus' judgments will be utterly ruthless. And that's why he explains here in verse 30 that his judgments will be just because what he does is what the Father does. 
His actions are always consistent with the Father. The point of verse 30 is that He is in perfect union with the Father, perfect unity with the Father, even with respect to judgment. Then in verse 31, Jesus shifts to the topic of evidence, evidence proving His claim of unity and equality with the Father. Look at verse 31. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. The word testimony is the Greek word martyreo, where we get our English word martyr. The word testimony is the martyreo is, is the verb. Testimony is the noun. Test, you know, testify is the verb. Martyreo. Testimony is the noun. Marturia in the Greek, which is just a, a cognate of the verb. It, you know, the, the, the words are, are kind of cousins, the noun and the, and the verb are cousins. This, these are words of the courtroom. We've seen these words before. These are courtroom terms. And the reason that courtroom terms are used, this word, marturia, martureo, testify, testimony, it's used 47 times in the book of John, in the gospel of John. And you say, gospel, gospel, that's good news. Why are we talking about judgment? Why are we talking about court, courtroom terms in a gospel? Because baked into the gospel is judgment. Cooked into the gospel, embedded in the gospel, is judgment, which is to say, avoiding judgment. The gospel means good news. Evangelion in the Greek, good news. The good news is that the one who trusts in Jesus does not come into the judgment of the high court of heaven. That's the point of the book, is to teach us life. Life, which is the opposite of judgment. I mean, this is the purpose statement for the book. Remember John said this at the end of the book, John 20, verse 30, Therefore many other things Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Life as opposed to judgment. You can't talk about the good news without talking about the bad news. The good news is that we're saved from the bad news. The good news is that we're saved and delivered from Jesus' fierce, horrifying terrifying, ruthless judgment. The good news is we're not going to be in the judgment of the court. These are courtroom terms. Testify, testimony, witness. Because Jesus is the one you must take seriously. What does Jesus mean in verse 31 when he says, my testimony isn't true if I testify about myself? What's he saying? Well, we know, obviously, he's not saying that you can't believe what I tell you. He's not saying, don't trust me in what I say. It's possible that Jesus is referring to the legal requirement in the Mosaic Law that you have to have more than one witness. You have to have two witnesses, like in certain criminal cases that involve the death penalty. In the capital cases of the Mosaic Law, Deuteronomy 17, 6, requires at least two witnesses, two or more witnesses. It's possible that Jesus is talking about that technical legal requirement, but I don't think so. I think he's talking about something much bigger. I think what he's addressing is 
the nature of his claims. He's just claimed to be equal with the Father. He's just claimed to be God in the flesh. He's said, the Father discloses everything to me. I have perfect unity with him. He's said, the Father loves me because I'm co-equal with him. He said, my actions equate to the actions of the Father. He said, my words equate to the words of the Father. Belief in my word is the same as believing in the Father's word. He has made audacious claims. Right? What he is saying to this crowd of religious leaders is, I have made these claims, these spectacular claims. Don't believe me. Don't believe me if the only evidence I have are my words. Because the claims demand additional evidence. That's what he's saying. He's saying because he loves them. I'm not asking you to exercise blind faith. Please never believe the skeptics who come along and say, oh, that's so nice. You know, they say in this kind of condescending way, that's so nice. You have faith. You're going to kind of walk out on a limb. You're going to have blind faith. Hogwash. Hogwash. We do not have blind faith. Jesus doesn't ask this crowd to have blind faith because he loves them. He says, you should expect evidence to substantiate the words, to prove the words that I'm speaking. Because the words that I've said, the nature of the claims are so spectacular when I claim to be equal with the Father. If there's not additional evidence from the one who I claim to be equal with, then you shouldn't believe me. Because God in the flesh loves this crowd. And He's not asking for blind faith. He's asking for them to believe Him and even to demand evidence. One of the many things that you have to love about God is He says, let me show you. Let me show you. We believe in the evidence that Jesus has got in the flesh. He presents the evidence. God does. And then he says, you have an option. Believe it or reject it. And so, Jesus is saying here, you should expect evidence in addition to my words because I am claiming to be equal with God. Now, the Pharisees will come along in chapter 8 and distort Jesus' words. But we'll see that when we get there. This reminds me of C.S. Lewis's C.S. Lewis's phrase. Now Jesus either has to be a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. I mean, Jesus is saying, if the only evidence I have are my words, then you shouldn't believe me when I claim to be equal with the Father. Or if I could use C.S. Lewis's words, he's a liar or a lunatic if the only evidence he has are his words. And so Jesus says, let me show you the evidence. Let me display the witnesses. And by the way, the witnesses aren't from me. The witnesses are from the one that I claim to be equal with. The witnesses are from the Father. Look at verse 32 and you'll see that. Jesus says, there is another who testifies about me. And I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Jesus is referring to the Father here. The Father supplies 
various witnesses to validate Jesus' claim that Jesus is equal with the Father. In a moment, we're going to see two of those witnesses. But first, Jesus says, I know the Father's testimony about me is true. Why does he say that? I mean, what does that matter? I know that the Father's testimony about me is true. Jesus is again claiming perfect unity with the Father. Jesus has always known, since eternity past, that He is co-equal with the Father. And He has known, since eternity past, that everything that the Father says about Jesus is true. Jesus knows that. But now He wants them to know that. And that's why in a moment He's going to start talking about, I want you to be saved. He wants them to know what He has always known which is that everything that the Father says about Jesus is absolutely true. This is why I say he's going to shift to his whole focus, but now he's going to say it in terms of words, is their salvation. And he's going to shift to you. He's going to start using the second person plural pronoun, you. He's going to start talking about and directly towards them. Look at verse 33. You, this is... We would say, y'all. It's the you plural. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Here's the first witness. John the Baptist is the first witness that the Father sent. We see that in John chapter 1, verse 6. There we read, there came a man sent from God, sent from the Father, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light. The light, of course, is Jesus so that all might believe through him. Now when Jesus says, you sent to John, he's taking us back to verse 19, where they sent the delegation. We know from later in chapter 1 that it's, a, it's the Pharisees who sent the delegation to Jesus, and they sent the delegation to to, uh, excuse me, they sent the delegation to John and they asked him there in verse 19 of chapter 1, who are you? Just to refresh your memory, remember we were, we studied that part of chapter 1 and the Pharisees sent the, some of the Levitical priests to some of the Levites and the priests to ask of John, who are you and what do you teach? That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, you sent to John. That's what that phrase meant. It means. Jesus says that John the Baptist testified to the truth. He testified to the truth. Remember John the Baptist's testimony that we've already seen so far in the book? Number one, he testified that Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. John chapter 1, verse 23. John said, John the Baptist said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said, we read that and we're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Don't read that too fast. John the Baptist is quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, you have this statement about one, a voice of one crying in the wilderness to make straight the way of Yahweh. So John says, I'm that one that was prophesied 700 years earlier to make straight the way of 
Yahweh in the flesh. So John claimed that Jesus was God in the flesh. John also testified that Jesus is eternal. John chapter 1, verse 30. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. As we saw, John the Baptist was born before Jesus was born. John the Baptist is older than Jesus, yet John the Baptist says Jesus existed before me. He is referring to Jesus as the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was from, ever, from everlasting to everlasting. John also testified that Jesus is the Son of God, meaning he is of the same order, the same essence of God. In John chapter 1, verse 34, we read, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. John also testified that Jesus is the one who removes judgment that is due us because he bears sin on our behalf. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. An utterly breathtaking statement that, G, that John the Baptist testified with respect to Jesus. This is the testimony that Jesus is talking about in verse 33 when he says John has testified to the truth. Sure enough, that's me, is what Jesus is saying. All those things that John testified about, that's true about me. And Jesus uses the perfect tense in the Greek when he says ha, John has testified to the truth. Has testified. That's the perfect tense. We've studied the perfect tense before. It's past action. The action's completed in the past with ongoing results. This probably means that John has already died. John the Baptist has already been executed. Remember, he was beheaded by Herod Antipas. It probably means that, that his ministry, John the Baptist is already deceased. And his words, though, his testimony continues to echo down the years. It, it echoes beyond John the Baptist's death. What's happening is we have a reality that John the Baptist's words were powerful. John the Baptist's words evidenced who Jesus was. But as powerful and persuasive as those words were, they're not the source of the evidence. John's words are not the source of the evidence about Jesus. Look at verse 34. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, no human, not even the great John the Baptist, is the source of the evidence of who Jesus is. The source of that evidence is the Father. John was simply an agent, a representative of the Father. Jesus is talking about John so that the crowd might believe in Jesus. Keep reading in verse 34. But I say these things so that you may be saved. I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus is talking to a crowd that hungers to kill him. And he's busy thinking about how they may be saved. Jesus is a man of vast, boundless love. Fully man, fully God. In the face of this murderous crowd, he is focused on their salvation. And so the first witness that he lists, the first witness that he identifies is a witness that they can relate to, is a witness that they're familiar with. Because everybody knows of John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist was very popular, very well known. What we're seeing here is Jesus' love because he's focused on their salvation and in reality his whole ministry was characterized by love. Do you remember the first phrase that he mentioned on the cross? Anybody remember the first phrase? After they had brutalized him and removed the skin from his back and pierced his head with a, a crown of thorns and spit on him and punched him and made him carry the instrument of his execution, the cross, and nailed him to the tree and secured it in the ground. You remember the first phrase he says? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. This is a man, a person, fully God, fully man, who is characterized by vast, boundless love. And yet, although he's loving, he's also just. Although he's merciful and gracious, he's also righteous. And so he is, in addition to being loving, he's also a man, a person, fully God, fully man, who will judge, and he will judge in a manner that is utterly ruthless. But here he's concerned with us, their salvation so that they will not come under his judgment. So he begins with a list of witnesses with a person that they knew well. Sadly, although John the Baptist was well known, most did not heed his testimony. Look at verse 35. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining and you were willing to, to rejoice for a while in his light. Most treated John the Baptist as kind of a rock star. Yeah, John the Baptist. John the Baptist. He's kind of a celebrity. They didn't treat him as one whose religious instruction they should obey. They didn't hear his words and submit to the Messiah that he was proclaiming. Remember the message of John the Baptist? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A unique offer, because the king was at hand, offering his kingdom. But they had to submit to the king. They didn't want the Messiah that John the Baptist was teaching, was jo that John the Baptist was telling them to repent to, repent before. They wanted a political Messiah who would free them from being under the boot of the Romans or the sandal of the Romans, the oppression of the Romans. They didn't want the biblical Messiah, they wanted the political Messiah. But with the biblical Messiah, yes, he will liberate Israel. Yes, he will bring vast, boundless prosperity. Yes, he will do all of those things, those physical things that we will get. But first, you must submit to him spiritually. And those who refuse to submit to him spiritually will receive none of those physical blessings. Instead, they will feel, receive physical suffering and punishment the Messiah that John the Baptist was preaching was not the Messiah that the people wanted. They wanted a political Messiah as opposed to the true biblical Messiah. Jesus' point in mentioning the first witness, John the Baptist, who was sent by the Father, his point was to say that John's witness was powerful. His words were powerful. He spoke the truth about me, but he is gone. He's not here anymore. And now there's even a more powerful witness. There's more powerful evidence about who I am, about my equality with the Father. Keep reading. Verse 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. 
For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me, that the Father has sent me. Jesus is making a contrast between two witnesses. A contrast between the witness of John the Baptist and the witness of Jesus' works. He's making a contrast between two sets of evidence. It's like a lawyer shows up with a jury and he's got this stack of evidence and this stack of evidence. Jesus is contrasting the two stacks of evidence. He's saying, John's words were impressive. John's words were powerful. John's words were powerful, were, were persuasive. But here's another stack of evidence. And this stack of evidence is my works. And they're much more persuasive, much greater than John's words, as impressive as John's words were. John said that Jesus was God in the flesh, but Jesus showed that he is God in the flesh through his works, his wonders, and his signs. You see, John the Baptist didn't do any works. He didn't do any signs. He didn't do any miracles. We know that from John chapter 10, verse 41, where we read, many came to him, to Jesus, and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man, Jesus, was true. John didn't come to give signs. He came to be a voice crying in the wilderness, to speak, to be a mouthpiece, not to give signs. Jesus came and and spoke and signs. And what Jesus is saying here is he's describing the second witness, the second witness from the Father, which are the signs that the Father gave Jesus to perform. Jesus did spectacular signs, signs, wonders, works that the Father gave him, signs that were prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah 35, verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. That's why Jesus didn't turn someone's sandals into a hippo. right? You don't find any description of Jesus turning someone's hair into a giraffe. You don't find any passages in the Scripture of Jesus taking a loaf of bread and turning it into a monkey, a talking monkey. Right? Everything I'm saying here sounds absurd. All these examples sound absurd, ridiculous. Because Jesus came to perform the signs that the Father gave him that had been prophesied centuries earlier. Because Jesus' signs were performed by Jesus with extreme precision to evidence that he was the prophesied Messiah, God in the flesh. And he will do much greater signs than healing the lame, like he did at the beginning of chapter 5, the paralytic. Much greater signs than, than healing the mute or the deaf and the blind or the lame. He'll do much greater signs before the book is over. We'll see one of those signs here in a moment. Jesus says something that is very, very interesting at the end of this verse, at the end of verse 36. He says, The very works that I do testify about me, that the Father has sent me. They testify that the Father has sent me. Why is that important, that the Father sent Jesus? Why does Jesus want them to know, want this murderous crowd to know, that the Father has sent Jesus. 
He's saying the Father assigned works for me to do. I did them, and I did them for the purpose that the Father assigned them to me to do, which is to prove that the Father sent me. I think John chapter 11 helps answer the question why it's important for us to know that the Father sent Jesus. Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11, verse 38. The context there is that Jesus' friend Lazarus, excuse me, Lazarus, has gotten sick and he's died. He's been dead for a number of days and his body is starting to decay. John chapter 11, verse 38, reads like this. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb, this is the tomb where Lazarus was. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe. There's our phrase so that they may believe that you sent me. Stop there for a minute. Jesus asked the Father for the authority and the power to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, of course, Jesus already has that authority and power because he's God, just like the Father. He's always had that authority since eternity passed. But Jesus submits to the Father's will as he said so far in John chapter 5. Perfect unity with the Father. Jesus doesn't do anything that is outside the Father's will. And so Jesus restrains. He does not use the independent use. He does not exercise his divine prerogatives independent of the Father. That's the way it's been since eternity passed. The Son has always submitted to his equal, to the Father. And that's the way it is in the hypostatic union. When Jesus, when the God, the Son, in the flesh is on the planet, same way. He submits His divine prerogatives. It's not like He doesn't have them. It's not like He loses them. It's just He doesn't exercise them independent of the Father. That's the eternal subordinate. It's the doctrine of the eternal subordination of the Son. It's been that way in eternity past. It will be that way forever. And it was that way when He was on the planet as a man. This is why Jesus asked the Father for the authority and the power to heal this man from the dead. But he doesn't ask silently. His prayer is not silent. It's a vocal, public prayer. He wants everyone to know. He wants the whole crowd who is around this tomb, who's weeping, as he did just a few verses earlier, God in the flesh wept at this scene, Jesus, it says Jesus wept just a few verses earlier. He wants everyone to know that he was sent by the Father and that the works that he does, in a moment he's going to raise this man from the dead, that the works that he does, the, the supernatural, spectacular work of making the dead body that has been decaying for days live, he wants everybody to know that that work is done Because he wants them to understand that the Father sent him. That's what he says right here, right? In his prayer. So that they may believe that you sent me. 
He wants everybody to know that he does the Father's will, that he is in perfect unity with the Father. Keep reading in verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth like a mummy. The mummy walks out. He walks out of the tomb. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary, Mary's the other sister of Lazarus, and saw what he had done, what Jesus had done, believed in him. There it is. Believing in him means that they were saved. And they were saved because he saw this spectac- they saw this spectacular work of raising a man from the dead that the Father gave him. And they understood. They're saved because they understood that Jesus was sent by the Father. So the answer to the question of why it matters, why it matters that we believe that Jesus was sent by the Father, I mean, that's what he's saying in verse 36 of chapter 5. He's saying his evidence, the works that the Father gave him, evidence that he's sent by the Father. And he wants the crowd to know the crowd of religious leaders that's before him. He wants us to know that he's sent by the Father. The reason that is significant is because that is the message of the gospel. Right? John 3.16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world may be saved through him. Verse 16 and verse 17 say the same thing just with different words. You could take the word send from verse 17 and replace it with the word give. You could flop, flip those words and you'd have the same meaning. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. Gave, send, same meaning. For God so loved the world that He gave the Son into the world not to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. In fact... The Greek word forgive that is used in, in John 3.16, he gave, is the Greek word didomi. And one of the senses, one of the meanings of that word is to send. Like in Acts 14.17, where God gives rain from the sky. The meaning there is he sends the rain from the sky. Here's the point. The point is that Jesus wants us to know, including that he's teaching the, the, the crowd of religious leaders that that want to kill him, and us by extension, he wants us to know that the Father gave him the works that he did so that the works would evidence, would testify that Jesus is sent from the Father and that the only way of salvation is through Jesus. If Jesus is the judge and no one else judges, that's what he said. Right? He said earlier in John chapter 5, the Father has given me all judgment. The Spirit's not going to judge. The Father's not going to judge. Jesus isn't going to judge. But if Jesus says, you're forgiven, I pardon you because you've trusted in me, who can condemn us if he's the only judge? No one. This is Paul's argument in Romans, in the book of Romans. This is the beauty of the one who loves us. Who loves us. If you're here today, and you don't know this one, 
you haven't come into his great vast love we want you to know that he had you personally in mind when he was on the cross you are his enemy by nature that's who we are sinners rebels by nature by nature we are opposed to a righteous holy god that's why we crave wickedness like i wish it wasn't true but it just is i wish i could say something sweet and cuddly but i can't it's true Paul describes us as at enmity with God. And so, the only way to be not the enemy of God is to be one who is believing in His Son, God in the flesh, who came to pay for our sins. This is the Jesus who is described in the Bible. He is fully God, fully man. He is the one who paid for our sins, who died for our sins according to the Scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, That evidenced one of the final signs that we will see in the book is his resurrection, one of his works that evidences that in fact he is and was sent by the Father and in fact he is and was God in the flesh. And he is the judge, the judge whom you want a pardon from today, today. All you have to do is trust in him. If you refuse, you will suffer under his ruthless judgment forever. So don't refuse. It's simple. He loves you. Accept him. Trust him. Believe that he is the one who paid for your sins and gives you access to his eternal kingdom. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you edify us by it, transform us by it, And we thank you for the opportunity to celebrate this day. We ask that you help our nation as we remember from 21 years ago the terrorist attacks. We ask that you help us return to you. We ask that you remind us that you're in control of human history. And we ask that you challenge us to seek you, to remember you, Help us be like the, like the first three or four months after the terrorist attacks where the churches were full. Bring us a revival, please, Father. Challenge us to worship you and not ourselves and to not be distracted by the ways of the world. We pray these things in the name of His Majesty and in the authority of His Majesty, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.